Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 10 of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. Welcome to June of 2023. I hope that your spring has been filled with lots of sunshine, blue skies, warmer temperatures, and fragrant blossoms. I know that mine has. And and baseball. Yes, lots of baseball. How can we forget baseball? I think the soundtrack of my life will be the Cleveland Guardians play-by-play announcer on the radio playing in the background. You know, as I think about it, here's some, here's some funny stuff from my generation. When I was a kid, the tribe, as they were known back then, was carried on only one radio station that we could tune in where I lived. That was WFOB AM out of Fostoria, Ohio. If you're listening in that area, you're familiar with WFOB because they're still on the air. That was the only station that we could tune in where we lived that carried the Cleveland Indians, as they were called back then, of the 1960s and 70s. And Cleveland was really bad back then. I mean, really bad in the 70s. I mean, really bad. I remember some of their managers back then, Elvin Dark, Ken Espromonte, Frank Robinson, I think he was even a, maybe a player manager for a while. I think he hit a home run the first opening day that he came in, let himself in the game and hit a home run. Jeff Torborg, I think he was a catcher. Dave Garcia, those were some of the managers back then. And the Indians, as they were known back then, usually finished you know at least 20 games out of first place. It seemed like they always ended up fifth or sixth in their division. It was really bad. But my dad had a tube radio on a shelf in our garage, and we would turn the game on and play table tennis against each other for hours, it seemed like. I, I can only say that my dad and I must have been true fans to stick with such a lousy team back then. And no, they, they weren't on TV back then either, unless you could pull in Channel 8 out of Cleveland. We could not. You have to remember, that was before the advent of cable TV. We got only two local TV stations. That's right, only two through the air via our tall antenna outside our house. That was Channel 11 <laughs> and Channel 13. That was it, two. And the remote control was was me or my sister. Like, hey, would you turn the channel to whatever? And fortunately, we only had two channels to choose from, so didn't do a lot of turning from Channel 11 to Channel 13. And then in the early 1970s, I remember UHF arrived. Remember UHF TV? Had that weird circular antenna that you hooked up to the back of your TV set. And that brought in another channel for us, channel 24. So we had a total of three channels to choose from. So today we have modern technology, Bluetooth speakers, 
and the major league app bad application on my phone, and that's how I listen to the games today. And thank goodness for modern technology. That's all I have to say. By the way, if you're not hearing what you want to hear on this podcast, please send me an email. I answer every email that I receive. My email address is tjordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at 1795group.com. Once again, that's tjordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at 1795group.com. Here's an interesting question for you. Did you know that you're listening to one of the fastest-growing podcasts in the United States right now? That's what we're told by the experts who know these things. Grassroots Health is now streamed worldwide on 12 different streaming platforms. So you've made a very wise choice to listen to this podcast. Please rate us, evaluate us, subscribe, whatever you can do to spread the word. You can listen to each of our podcasts on our website at 1795group.com slash podcast forward slash. And those are forward slashes. That's 1795group.com forward slash podcast forward slash. Or you can listen wherever people listen to the podcast. As I said, we were streamed on 12 different streaming platforms. Recently, I also wrote 12 resource guides with you in mind that are on our website. And these resource guides do just that. They guide you. They provide important and very helpful information to you that you will not get anywhere else. They're written summaries of past virtual workshops that we've done, and I put them in resource guide format so it's easy for you. Like resource guide, how to do needs assessments, grants 101, how to communicate with and care for dying people. All those workshops that we did this past year, those are on the website for you. You can find those resource guides on our products page at 1795group forward slash buy, B-U-Y forward slash. Okay, let's turn our attention to this episode, shall we? Our guest is waiting inside the studio for me. I'm waving to him right now. So on this episode, my special guest and I are going to explore the impact of mis- and disinformation. How are those things different? Misinformation and disinformation. Have you noticed the presence of widespread misinformation or disinformation since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially on social media? Man, I have. There's a lot of it out there. Have you noticed how myths or disinformation, conspiracy theories, are used by certain people to motivate acts of hate and violence towards our government? towards black and brown people, towards Jews, and other racial and ethnic minorities. I mean, it's, it's so prevalent now. So in this episode, we're going to investigate that. My special guest is Dr. Yotam Ophir. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Communication from the University at Buffalo, New York. I really like him. I really do. Yeah, I know I say I don't have any friends, but I do have friends. Dr. Ophir is originally from Israel, so his perspective on U.S. society is is very fresh and unbiased, and you're really going to like him, like me. So I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Here he is, Dr. Yotam Ophir from the University at Buffalo, New York. 
I hope that you enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Tim Jordan. I'm your host. This is episode 10. If you're listening, this is already early June, and the weather's certainly warming up. It's very sunny here today, and uh, hopefully you have some flowers to greet you and your mother, especially for Mother's Day, which was on May 14th. Today, we are talking to Dr. Yotam Ophir. He's Assistant Professor, Department of Communication at the University of Buffalo, and our topic today is the impact of misinformation and disinformation. So here he is. Hi, Ofer. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Uh, you know, we're going to give you some free advertising for the University at Buffalo in New York. Uh, this is your chance to, to toot the horn of your university, free advertising. So let me ask you this question. Why should students who are coming out of high school... And thinking about a university, why should they select the university at Buffalo, and why should they major in communication? Right. So um, I, I will begin with the second part. Uh, why should students choose communication? Um, I think the answer to this question has changed quite a lot uh, in recent years. Uh, to me, it was always obvious that everything is communication. Um, I began my my degree, uh, my BA, in 2007 or so. Uh, so the internet was around, of course, but it was very basic still, and then social media was very small in, in scope. Um, and I remember it was kind of hard in a way, or at least challenging, to explain to people why they should go study communication. It, it felt like a kind of a niche, uh, you know, inside sociology or something. Um, talking about newspapers and radios and, and broadcasting and stuff like that. I think in the last 20 years or so, um, our lives have completely changed uh, in, in the way that we interact with media and in the way we begin to acknowledge how big media are part of our lives. Um, these days, I tell my students all the time, everything is communication. Um, and everything is media. Everything is technology. We can't separate the two. Uh, uh, we can't separate our lives and, and media anymore from one another. Um, similarly, the topics that we're going to talk about today, misinformation and disinformation, those used to be uh, kind of very small, limited in scope um, uh, niches in inside psychology or, or sociology research. These days, every person I talk to, it can be a doctor, it can be a physicist, it can be an archaeologist, it can be a politician. Everybody understands that it affects their job, it affects their way to communicate their findings, um, and it uh, affects the way, you know, science is being mediated. Um, with with the people, with citizens. So I, I believe this is the perfect time to go study communication. I think it, it just becomes bigger and bigger. Um, the tools that we give to students um, are useful in, in myriad of, of professions. Um, and I, I, I strongly believe that um, it might be one of the most important subjects um, for people to know and, and understand in the 21st century, be it in college and be it in, in, in high school or elementary school. I wish my daughter would, you know, learn about media more um, in elementary school. Now, why UB? I, I absolutely love the department here. Um, we, 
We are small but fierce um, uh, compared to some of the big schools. We, we are uh, modest in size, and yet we, we produce outstanding work. I mean, my colleagues here publish in, in, in fantastic journals all the time, uh, extremely productive, high quality of work, um, which for me is, is very important. I want to feel that I'm surrounded by talented and smart people. Um, and I think we are... Um, you know, within this 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 larger um, phenomenon called media, I think we are studying it from multiple perspectives, um, with a focus on what matters, you know, with a focus on the the most urgent social questions of the time, um, some of which we're going to discuss today, and and I I love how this department can attack this question. From uh, from computational text analysis, but also from uh, facial recognition and, and nonverbal communication, and also from psychology and understanding how stories work. I mean, we, we are very, I think, con- comprehensive in our approach to media, and and I absolutely love working with my students and my colleagues. Um, so it's an easy recommendation for me. Very good. Uh, how many students are at UB? Um, well, the grad school is, is, again, it's smaller than maybe some places. We have, I'm assuming, uh, I'm probably wrong, but I will say about 30 to maybe 50 graduate students in total. Um, yeah, every year we bring about three, four new PhD students and, and then a bunch of MA students. Into your department? Yeah, yeah. So, so smaller okay. than what you might find. I have a colleague in Georgia State that it's a factory there. Like They have so many students and faculty. Um, so ours is much smaller, but uh, we pick very carefully. <laughs> That's very good. Well, thank you for that plug. And if you're a student thinking about going to college somewhere and majoring, please consider... University at Buffalo and consider communication. I noticed a book on behind you. Um, this is on video, obviously. We're we're seeing our listeners may not see it, but there's a book behind you called "Democracy Amid Crises," and I think it says "Polarization, Pandemic, Protest, and Persuasion." That's really interesting. So tell us a little bit about the book. Right. So uh, this is our book. Uh, it's a it's a collaborative effort, um, a true one. You know, a lot of people love to say that they do collaborations and interdisciplinary work. This is a collaborative interdisciplinary work. And the reason it is um, that is, is that the 2020 elections were extremely complicated um, between COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter protests, and the Trump presidency, obviously, and the attacks on the integrity of the elections and the integrity of the media that covered the elections, um, and the economic crisis that that affected many Americans uh, very severely. Those were very, very tense, very complex um, elections. And to understand them, we uh, brought together experts from different areas, from from political science to communication to uh, computational uh, social scientists. That that was my part. I did the computational uh, part um, to survey experts. And and together we are following about 9,000 Americans um, living in in four battleground states uh, throughout 2020. 
and and we use a very very rigor um, uh, method for our survey. It's a it's a fourteen wave panel which you barely see in in the wild. Uh, meaning for for those who are not familiar, it means that we are following the same people over different points in time. So we can see changes, you know, within people, not just between people. And different times. Fourteen different times. And we can yeah. see how they how they react to to the madness that was the twenty twenty elections. Uh, it came out um, about four months ago uh, at University of Oxford um, publication, and and again it's it's a it's a, it's a collaborative effort. I, I did my part, but there are uh, seven other fantastic researchers here who led the way and, and um, brought their expertise to light. Uh, very very proud interesting. Of this. Thank you. So, if you're interested in the topic again, it's available on Amazon. The title of it is Democracy Amid Crises, Polarization, Pandemic, Protests, and Persuasion. It was published by Oxford University Press in early 2023. So today we're talking about misinformation and disinformation. Um, I would like you, Dr. O'Fair, you're the expert here. Would you please define each of those for me, please, misinformation and disinformation. How are they different? How are they the same? Right. So there is a lot of confusion around the terminology um, that we can use to talk about about our information uh, integrity, let's call it. Um, there are even more than these two, right? So, so people talk about rumors. Rumors, for example, could be true. It's just something that you've heard, you know, but it might or might not be true. Then you have um, ignorance. Sometimes people confuse that with misinformation. Ignorance is just not knowing. You know, I just don't know. You ask me how many branches, you know, does the uh, American government have? And I say, I don't know. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It just means that I don't know. Uh, and it's a problem by itself. Um, but we usually, I think that what you're referring to is the, is the category that includes three types of, of false information, right? <laughs> misinformation, uh, disinformation, and one that I will talk about very briefly, which is fake news. Uh, let's start for misinformation. Misinformation is any kind of, of uh, information that's wrong. It means it, it, it is factually incorrect, um, and it's being spread, you know, by people who may or may not understand that it's wrong. Usually they don't understand that it's wrong. So misinformation is, uh, you know, the type of, of um, uh, social media post that you saw, you thought it was interesting, uh, maybe it said something very surprising that you, you know, didn't think about yourself, and you want to share it with others, so you do. Uh, disinformation uh, is, a, is a pretty unique and, and challenging category because it implies, the disinformation implies that the communicator is uh, spreading falsehoods on purpose, intentionally. Mm. Uh, generally speaking, and I, I, I'm very uh, often kind of, you know, warning my students and, and colleagues um, to not use this term without, you know, being extremely cautious. Because it's really, really hard to know if someone is, is you know, lying and intentionally... Uh, um, uh, misleading people, or if they believe in the falsehood, right? There was a big um, debate among journalists in the last, let's say, uh, five years or so, maybe more, uh, seven years, 
um, around whether or not they should call Donald Trump, uh, former President Trump, a liar, right? If you call him a liar, that means you argue that he's spreading disinformation, meaning he's doing it intentionally. But that this is something that it's in 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 the wild, in the real world, is often hard to know. I mean, I don't know if Trump believes what he says or not. Uh, some suggested that maybe the uh, criterion will be if you correct him and he continues to lie after that, then it's intentional. But even that is not persuasive enough. So in my view, and and there is no consensus, you know, among all social scientists. But in my view, I keep disinformation for cases where there is a concerted effort, um, let's say, by a foreign entity or, or a domestic entity, such as the uh, Russian International Research Agency, that this is a, a, a group of uh, trolls and bots that was operated by the Russian government during 2016. Um, their job was to spread confusion and, and lies among Americans, Uh, they worked in a, in a factory-like environment where they created fabricated accounts uh, who were responsible, you know, for interfering with our elections and, and political process. This, I'm, I'm, I feel fine calling this information. It's not just the Russians, by the way. I have a paper coming out uh, literally any day now. Uh, it's in, in production where me and my colleague, uh, Dr. Dror Walter, looked at um, disinformation efforts from multiple countries. You have uh, trolls and bots operating from China and Russia and Bangladesh and, uh, and Venezuela and many, many, many more. Um, so that, that's disinformation. It's, it's an intentional, um, orchestrated attempt to lie and deceive people. The last so category... Would you say, oh, sorry, what? Uh, would you say that then it comes to motive... Or intention. Misinformation is, I don't know, I may be ignorant, I'm spreading information right. that's not true, but disinformation, I do know right. it is not true. Is that correct? Yes, yes. We Most most researchers agree that disinformation is the act of spreading falsehoods intentionally in order to gain you know, financial or political or personal gain. Okay. Uh, You're going to say there's a third. In, there's a third yes, category. Yes, yes. I'll mention a third one, and I'll do it very briefly because I absolutely dislike it. Um, the third one, which I unfortunately see a lot of laypersons and academics use too often, is fake news. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to clarify for your audience that fake news uh, at this moment doesn't have any meaning anymore. It used to mean, if you go back in time, it used to mean satire and, and like, you know, humoristic, cynical kind of news uh, mm -hmm. in the brand of John Stewart or uh, like Stephen Colbert. Saturday Kobe. Night Live, exactly. for example. They may do broadcasts that are... Right. And I believe John Stewart uh, described his own daily show as, as fake news. Yes. But, of course, as, as you know, Donald Trump hijacked the, this term in 2016 and forward. Um, and, and the way that Trump used it, Trump has a very interesting way with language in general. And the way he used it pretty much nullified it of any meaning because for Trump, fake news was everything he dislikes. Every time a person criticized him, it's fake news. Every time CNN say whatever, it's fake news. Um, the term became so politicized uh, and, and so detached from the veracity of information from the validity of the reporting that I strongly argue that people should never use it in any context anymore. It just, it doesn't mean anything. 
so I, I, yeah, we can focus on misinformation and disinformation. I think it would be uh, much better. Okay, let's do that. Um, let Let's start with misinformation then. Um, I want to know if you agree or disagree with me. Okay, mm-hmm. so here's here's what I see, and I, I published a paper with one of our graduates. We published a paper early on in the pandemic about that we faced one of the problems was an infodemic, that there was information just coming at us from all sides. You had cable news, you had national news, you had social media. I mean, you had a lot of information and people just kind of, and my own family members kind of threw up their hands and said, all right, I I don't know what to believe. And they just kind of went with whatever they thought was right. That's information. That's infodemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, we see that created some problems, misinformation and infodemic created some problems and in that people didn't know how to interpret health information. What's true? Right. Did the COVID vaccine actually start here? Do I buy this silver nitrate piece of toothpaste for nineteen ninety nine that Jim Baker, the Pentecostal guy, is selling? Um, and we see these things like impacting their mental health, in- increasing vaccine hesitancy, delayed the provision of health care. That's what I see, and I want to know what you see. Do you agree? Right. Um, okay, my challenge here will be to not, not to talk too long about this question. <laughs> okay. Um, I begin, I, I'm teaching a class to my graduate and undergraduate, actually, uh, students about misinformation and society. That's the name of the class. The first um, day of class, my first slides are uh, uh, time travel. And I take them back to the Black Plague in, in um, medieval Europe. Um, absolutely horrific time to be alive. And um, misinformation is everywhere. People want to understand what is this new disease that, that, that ravishes through Europe, kills millions of people uh, very fast. And um, and people are willing to accept anything that they hear, and and they're just trying weird stuff. You know, they drink uh, onion soups, they um, they move to live in the sewers because they want to keep their bodies, you know, secured against uh, against dirt or whatever. A very bad idea, by the way, because rats were the main uh, kind of uh, the, the distributors of this disease. Um, and they do some really, you know, dangerous stuff. Like, like uh, they drink their own pus, and they they uh, they drink emeralds and 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 weird things. And by the way, by the way, and you can connect it very easily to COVID. They scapegoat. So they believe that maybe, you know, the Jews are responsible. Maybe the Jews were, you know, poisoning whales with disease. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, the thing is, in in medieval um, uh, Europe, and even even in London during the cholera uh, of later times, people didn't know what to do during an epidemic because science did not exist yet, not in its systematic, you know, um, nature to give us the answers. I mean, people didn't understand how diseases are even, you know, uh, made or what makes them tr- uh, transmit from one person to the next. Um, these days. We do have the science. Uh, thanks to, to uh, Jon Snow and others, we do understand that, that diseases are not just, you know, foul air, that they are uh, moving in a systematic way we can trace with uh, epidemiological, you know, methods. Uh, we do understand germs now. We didn't understand germs back then. 
And and in a way, you would expect um, people to be in a much better place today because because the science is in. I mean, we don't need to guess anymore. We don't need to walk around streets and hit ourselves with with you know, uh, weep ourselves to uh, until we bleed in order to satisfy the gods or or something like that. And yet, COVID showed us the level of 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 distrust that people now have. Um, in in experts' knowledge, right to the point where they where they prefer to jump on any piece of information that floats around on their uh, TikTok or YouTube or WhatsApp or Facebook or Twitter. Um, I think the word infodemic, going back to your question, um, should be understood as as a, as an old problem in maybe new form. People, uh, people believed and spread misinformation probably from the moment we learned how to talk. Um, people misunderstood diseases forever. But people were never flooded with so much information that's around us in every moment of the day. I mean, we are so connected to information these days that we it's the first thing we do in the morning and it's the last thing we do at night before we fall asleep. You yes. know, people say hello to their phones before they say hello to their wives in the morning. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes some people use phones even when they are asleep. You know, they keep listening to podcasts or, or, or meditations or whatever. Um, we are bombarded by messages. We can't escape it. Advertisements, political messages, uh, interpersonal communications, uh, chat messages, posts on social media, public health experts. We are not built to deal with it, evolutionarily speaking. We are not, we have not evolved to be bombarded by thousands of messages uh, per hour. And, And I think people are just confused. They don't know, uh, they don't have the tools, you know, to separate good information from bad one. Um, our education system still teaches us uh, media literacy as if we are living in the 80s or something with three mm-hmm. networks and a bunch of newspapers. Um, we're, just, we're just lagging behind. Technology evolved much, much, much faster than us. So during COVID, what we see is that people are just drowning in information they have a lot of options to select from and and here are biases and and you know cognitive kind of shortcuts kick in maybe i'll choose information that i find interesting and not necessarily the most accurate one maybe i can choose the information that makes me feel good maybe i'll choose the information that makes my political party look good and and so on and so on and so on and maybe i'm going to be drawn to the most outrageous weird and surprising story um and, and of course, all of that is happening within a, a technological infrastructure that encourages engagement above anything else. So you so have. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me ask you this. I told you I can go forever, so you I have know. to stop. Me. Uh, no problem. I like that. <laughs> I like that in guests, by the way. Um, so you mentioned two things. One one thing I want to talk about is people don't know how to determine good information from bad information, from valid information, from invalid information, from reliable information, from unreliable information. So how do we do that? Do we start as college professors, both of you and I? I, I've had to teach that now to public health students for a couple years. How do you decipher between good information and bad information? Because that's all out there. Well, 
I wish I had a simple answer to that. Um, I'm, I'm again. I'm, I'm spending three months with students thinking about that, and mostly my students are just leaving this class crying and in despair. So, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I have a magic solution, but but we are. We have some vulnerabilities as humans. Um, some of the systems, again, I'm going back to evolution a lot, but uh, some of the systems that we developed in order to, you know, succeed in in, in day-to-day lives are failing us in, in the new environment. For example, there have been a debate for, for um, hundreds of years between philosophers about whether we uh, are inclined to accept information as true or, or, accept, or, or reject information as false. Like, what's the instinct? Uh, what's the initial response? And um, eventually, um, science showed us, uh, social science showed us that people are inclined to accept new information as true. Like that's our, that's our instinct. We, it's just efficient, right? I mean, we need to navigate through a lot of information mm-hmm. every day. Our brain accepts information as true, and if it, if if we have the extra motivation and resources, then we begin to challenge it. So, so to begin with, we're, we're beginning this battle from, from a bad position. We are inclined to believe what people tell us. Above that, we are inclined to believe things that make us, again, feel good and, and, and feel that we are right and, and righteous. Um, there is no simple solution, but the best one that I found so far from my experience is to give people the tools that they need uh, in terms of what we used to call literacy, right? So uh, literacy, not in the sense of, you know, knowing a lot of facts about about you know, the history of television. Although I teach that as well, but I don't think that helps. Literacy in the sense of understanding media, understanding media systems, understanding that the messages that all of us um, consume and encounter every day are not operating in a vacuum. They operate in... in uh, technological, um, political, and, and capitalistic system that that encourages some messages and discourage others. Um, the best the best gift I give to my students is is explaining to them who owns the media, how do they make money, uh, what are their motivations, and and you know what's happening behind the screen because because people don't understand it. People mm-hmm. don't understand it. They think that the media are trying to turn you into a liberal or that it tries to turn you into a conservative. It's not true. The media mm-hmm. try to keep you engaged. And and it is often the case, as research shows, that, that the most engaging content is misinformation and conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. So so the algorithms are are kind of, you know, prioritizing it. So understanding the the behind the screens, you know, like being able to look behind the curtain. Uh, of media and technology, I think is is the most important skill for people to have in any profession in the 21st century. I would agree with you. I think it's past the point where we can keep up with knowledge base, even in the medical literature. I think there are 400 articles published like every month or something. There's no way I can keep up, but I should become a really smart decipherer of information. I should be able to take an article or a source of media and weigh it and sift it and determine if it's valid and reliable. And that's, I think, what we're both trying to say. Let's go to disinformation for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that Fox News had to pay 
Dominion Voting Systems, the largest media um, penalty. It was in the billions, I think it was. I forget uh, yeah, the exact $787.5 million. Yeah, <laughs> yeah million dollars. Um, were they guilty of intentionally spreading wrong information to their viewers, do you think? And by the way, let me just say this. We're, we're just calling balls and strikes here. Um, we don't take a political side on grassroots health. We're just we're just connecting the dots yeah. and taking it where the information leads us. So we have to have some faith in our jurisdiction and lawsuits and, mm-hmm. and judges. And so Fox News was hit with this massive penalty. Right. Fo- Tucker Carlson has been fired. Mm-hmm. Um, were they guilty of disinformation, in your opinion? Fox News built itself around um, a unique kind of uh, business um, plan of, of narrow casting, meaning focusing on very, very specific audiences from day one. I mean, when, when uh, uh, Roger Ailes and, and uh, Rupert Murdoch built this uh, station in the 90s, they understood that, that the media environment was already crowded with a lot of broadcasters. You had um, ABC and NBC and CBS and CNN was doing pretty well as the 24-7 channel and so on. And, and, and Roger Ailes um, and, and Murdoch understood that they don't stand a chance uh, becoming just, you know, yet another network. Instead, they kind of um, followed um, uh, Roger Ailes' kind of instincts. He was, he was the CEO of, of uh, Fox News for decades until he had to quit because of sexual allegations. Um, and, and he passed away a few years ago. But uh, in his time at Fox, he decided intentionally to build a channel around the um, um, grievances and anxieties of a very specific and narrow um, uh, American subpopulation. White, Southerner, Christian, conservative, older, richer um, men, mostly men. over the years, Fox moved away from from what we in in, the, in our profession would call a, a news channel into what I would argue is is not news at all. They turned into uh, what I tell my students: it's almost like pornography for conservatives. Um, it's it's an entertainment channel. The Fox News, I'm talking here, the news. Uh, so ignore the news and 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 remember that it's, it, at its heart, it's an entertainment channel that tries to press the right buttons of uh, of uh, conservatives, of white people, of Christians, of older Americans. And it tries to, um, you know, amplify their grievances against what they perceive to be a changing America. And America is changing. America is changing. It's changing demographically. It's changing culturally. The whole world is changing. I mean, we are not unique in that regard. And Fox News at every point of the way was there to to you know make a buck out of that, um, they got their they got their fame and 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 ratings uh, during the Clinton era by by you know bashing the Democrats and and focusing on the Lewinsky scandal and so on. Over time, they became more and more sensational in nature and less and less um, uh, connected to to what we call journalistic norms. 
um, ironically enough, they use the slogan fair and balanced, uh, which is nothing is, is farther from the truth. And also the goal was to demonize the other media and, and telling their audiences, listen only to us, ignore everybody else. Don't listen to CNN. Don't listen to, you know, the New York Times. Only we and maybe conservative talk, uh, you know, hosts are reliable and care for their conservative men. Um, uh, as part of this strategy, they they gave up um, the integrity of news. They mixed up news and entertainment to the point where it's it's impossible anymore to know if a person like Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram or Bill O'Reilly before them um, are they journalists at all? And and by the way, they are very kind of. Uh, they 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 haven't decided yet themselves. So sometimes Sean Hannity will call himself a journalist, and sometimes he'll say, "I'm not a journalist. I'm an entertainer. You know, I I just do. You know, I just uh, talk for fun." Um, obviously, they don't uh, follow journalistic norms of accuracy and impartiality and um, um, unbiased. Uh, I know it not because it's my feeling. I know it because there is a lot of empirical evidence from uh, non, you know, nonpartisan organizations, from academic sources um, that looked at the coverage of multiple media channels. And Fox News is consistently slanted, um, biased towards the right, conservative opinions. But more concerning, they are consistently uh, um, detached from the truth. I mean, I mean, a big amount or percentage of their coverage is just wrong. And I, I'll just put an asterisk and, and I'll say that I'm talking mostly, mostly about the uh, what Fox News calls the talents. That's the Bill O'Reilly's and the Sean Hannity's. Uh, Fox News actually has a news department that does the actual news. And, and for the most part, they do a decent job. Uh, although recently they lost some of the of, of you know the most trusty journalists there as well. Anyway, empirically speaking, and not based on my opinions, um, there are many biased outlets out there. You can say that MSNBC is biased towards liberalism, and you'll be completely correct. However, there is no other channel that has such success that spreads consistently biased news. In a, in a misinforming way. And, and it has a price. You know, let's get back to reality. It has a price. It's not something that professors, you know, theorize about. During COVID-19, uh, studies show that people who rely on Fox News and, and other conservative media, but ex especially Fox News, were less informed about COVID than people who never opened TV at all. Okay, so, so I mean, and, and the people who watched a lot of conservative media and consumed Breitbart and, and OAN and Newsmax and things like that, uh, there is a study by uh, Mota and, and colleagues that showed that the more you relied on conservative media, the more likely you were to accept COVID misinformation, conspiracy theories, refuse vaccinations, and eventually die. I mean, that, that's not, we're not, you know, theorizing here at the ivory tower. We're talking about people's lives. And, and Fox News had become a, a dangerous source of information. 
Now, so you oh, would, from you what would, I would say, you would say yes. They uh, yeah they yeah are now, guilty of disinformation. Now, right. So Tucker for Carlson. the um, categorization between between misinformation and disinformation, I think the uh, the Dominion case, the the, the uh, legal case that you refer to, showed us striking evidence. That, that the people behind Fox, I'm talking about the hosts, I'm talking about uh, the management, they knew that Fox News was lying, in this case about the 2020 elections, about the integrity of voting. They knew they were lying. They said so to each other in personal messages. And then they would go on air and, and you know, say exactly the opposite. So that will fall under disinformation, disinformation. If you, if you text a person and say, uh, this lawyer is a nut job, and then you bring her in to, to, on air to spread uh, election lies, you're spreading misinformation on purpose. And you do it, I don't think they're doing it because they try to turn all of us conservative. I think they do it for money. I mean, that they give their audience what they think their audience want. And when they don't give them what they want, by the way, their audiences are flocking away and move to other places like OAN or, or Breitbart. I've always said you need to follow the money. Yeah. And media is all about money. Media is about selling advertising, keeping you engaged so that you can watch the advertisements and they can create more profit for their stock owners. Mm -hmm. That's what media is about. They have no obligation to you to be a news channel or to share the truth. Right. Their, their objective is to keep you engaged. So if you're just tuning in, I'm with Dr. Yotam Ophir. If you hear an accent in his voice, it's, becoming, it's because he's from Israel yeah. originally. And so he has fresh eyes and ears on U.S. society. He's an assistant professor at the Department of Communication at the University at Buffalo. Let's go to uh, how this misinformation, disinformation may play out in real life. Recently, very recently, we had a shooter at a Texas mall, and he killed eight people, including children. <clears throat> Looking at his computer and what he had ranted about, he had extremist beliefs. He ranted against Jews, women, racial minorities, and he also praised the person who killed, killed, I think, nine people at a private Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, they killed six people, was six people. Remember, the person went into a private Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee and shot up six people. He praised that person. Um, he posted these rants on Russian social media, including posts referring to content from white nationalists like Nick Fuentes. By the way, Trump, his family, and members of the former former president's cabinet are speaking at his hotel called the Doral Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida, uh, this weekend. And Nick Fuentes was invited. He's one of the keynotes right before our former secretary of state and so forth. Um, so Nick Fuentes is very much a white nationalist, anti-Semite. So... Let me ask you, Dr. Yotam Ofer, is the rise of this disinformation um, play a role in this 33-year-old shooting people at the Texas Mall, yes or no? Right. Um, of course, as a scientist, I'll have to, to be cautious here when, when talking about causality. Um, it's really hard to, you know, uh, pinpoint exactly the contribution of, of uh, a specific uh, social media post or um, um, 
conspiracy theory on, on a person's behavior. But generally speaking, the um, new wave of domestic terrorism that we've been facing, and it's not just in the United States. Um, take the uh, the shooter in, in New Zealand uh, in, in Christchurch a few years ago, and uh, the shooter in, in, I think it was a Sweden uh, camp or something. Um, all those um, have been connected to one another through a web of conspiracies and narratives um, that you could describe as, as in the umbrella term, the far right. Um, the far right is a pretty complicated uh, phenomenon, um, and it's it's it has a lot of you know intellectual pseudo intellectual sources to it, but a lot of it uh, surrounds around uh, conspiracy theories that came from the media. Now, uh, interestingly, again, I'm kind of going back to my original point about misinformation not being a new thing. I want to remind listeners that that the conspiracy theories that drove the Christchurch shooter and the uh, massacre in Texas and the shooting here in my, uh, you know, backyard here in Buffalo uh, not long ago, a year ago, um, those were driven by a conspiracy called the Great Replacement. The Great Replacement started with media, but not with social media and not with the internet. It started actually with a book, uh, a French book uh, from the 70s or so, and then it was kind of uh, turned into an American version called the Turner Diaries back in 1970, I believe, 8. Um, those books told the stories of a conspiracy, a nefarious kind of plan uh, conducted by a coalition of Jewish people and feminists and liberals and non-white people who secretly work together in order to eliminate the white race or by the very least eliminate the dominance of the white race in Western Europe, in the United States, in Canada and so on. Um, and they believed that, that people are working together in secrecy to, to come up with kind of creative ways to eliminate whites. For example, one of my recent studies uh, that was published uh, in, in late 2022 shows how white nationalists believe that abortion is a, is a plot by, by Jewish people to eliminate white babies, right? Um, they think that everything, including vaccines and, and, and you know, quarantines and, and everything, is somehow connected to this mega plan to eliminate whites and their heritage and their, you know, dominance. Let, um, me, um, let me interject here. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've studied for these and, and read a little bit and listened to a lot. And, mm -hmm. and so there's this, they think there's a secret, as they say, cabal, C-A-B-A-L, yeah, secret yeah. Cabal, cabal, that are trying to um, make people of color uh, greater than whites. And so we have like, well, why is the Democrat president so soft on immigration? Yeah. Why does he let immigration come in? Well, he wants to replace the whites, right? He wants to right. replace the whites. In your own backyard, about a year ago, as you said, a man went into a Topps grocery store, shot mostly black Americans. Right. Why did he shoot blacks? Because he had been infiltrated his mind with this conspiracy theory that... Yeah. Um, Blacks are taking over. We even have like Nick Fuentes and his lieutenants who say things like the Holocaust never happened. Yeah. That 
Um, vaccines for COVID killed way more people than anything, which is completely false. Yeah. They say things like Hitler should be a guy that should be idolized, and the Jews killed Hitler, and the Jews killed Abraham Lincoln, and the Jews killed all these different presidents, including William F. McKinley. <laughs> so um, you can see why there's this anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish hate yeah. that has increased uh, like the Anti-Defamation League who keeps track of these things, they said that anti-Semitic incidents are at an all-time high since they started keeping track of them, 1970s. Um, so again, I'm going to go back to this cabal, this these pedophiles that supposedly are sexually abusing children, these Jews. When you say this over and over and over again, and your own president, former president, it invites these people to come speak on the same dais with former American representatives who are part of his cabinet. I think something's wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The um, the, uh, the 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 stories that you're talking about are nothing new. Again, uh, Jews have been accused of uh, of raping Christian children and drinking their blood uh, for for about thousand years. Um, those stories keep popping up at times of, of social anxiety when, you know, there is a social change or uh, maybe an epidemic, a crisis like this, or maybe just cultural changes when you have a wave of immigrants, right? Changing the way uh, America looks. And they do change the way America looks, and that's fine. That's part of globalism, right? But um, when, when things change dramatically and people feel anxious, they look for scapegoats. And the scapegoats themselves, by the way, change. So take the idea of, of a cabal of, of um, you know, influentials who rape children. The Jews were uh, blamed of this in, in the Middle Ages. Then women were blamed of, of raping children in, in Salem during the witch hunts. Then here in the United States in the 90s, people believe that there is a bunch of uh, satanistic, you know, uh, teachers who rape their kids. And then, you know, in 2016, in the midst of the election, again, a very tense social time, um, you have uh, people beginning to argue that uh, that the owner of a, of a family-friendly pizzeria place in Washington, D.C., Comet Ping Pong, um, is is running a pedophilia ring connected to Hillary Clinton and, and John Podesta and whatnot. Um, and the, the, the brilliant thing about um, conspiracies is that they never go away. So Pizzagate was found, you talked about it with your previous um, um, guest. I mean, they, it was found obviously to be nothing. I mean, there was nothing in the basement of this pizzeria place. There was obviously. no basement. There was, there no, was basement. no basement. <laughs> there was no basement. Even the shooter realized that. He gave himself up to the police. And, you, and, and for a moment, we thought that we were done with this nonsense. And then it took only, you know, a few months for a new uh, blip on the uh, radar of uh, Reddit and Fortune and HN um, to, to reignite it with QAnon. Once again, all the same stories, uh, Jewish or, or rich or liberal or Hollywood elites are uh, drinking the blood of kids in order to stay young forever. And, and things that when you hear them, it sounds like complete madness. But but a big you know amount of Americans believe in it. I mean the numbers are scary. When when surveys ask people how many believe that that there is at least something you know about about uh, the Democrats running a, a a secret you know cabal of of blood drinkers uh, and pedophiles. I'm talking here about dozens of of, perc of percentages uh, percentages in the dozens of people. Let's who talk say about numbers and closing. Yeah, let's talk about numbers. 
So I have this for a fact based mm -hmm. on survey data. In the fall of 2022, 5% of Americans reported that the use of force was justified to restore former President Trump to office, even, even if it resulted in injury or death of other people. 5% yeah. of Americans. That's 5% that translates to approximately 13 million Americans. Not enough to get them elected again, but that's a lot of people, 13 million Americans. Another 12% of Americans who were surveyed, some 31 million felt ambivalent. They weren't sure. Eh, I'm not sure. So the main drivers for the millions supporting this anti-democratic violence that we saw on January 6th, as an example, yeah. was a belief in two prominent conspiracy theories that are rife with anti-Semitism. The Great Replacement Theory, as you talked about, 60% of those that wanted violence believed in that. And QAnon, 49% believed in it. So how is disinformation at the heart of all conspiracy theories, for instance, like Stop the Steal? Uh, talk a minute about conspiracy theories and how these things are at the heart of all these things that we discussed. Right. Um, uh, first of all, I, I, you know, we're social scientists, so we, we know that if 5% admit that they want to use force, that means that in reality more people are actually willing to use force. 5% uh, yes. of the people are willing to go ahead and say it. Um, and by the way, there is a, a book that came out recently that shows that, that there are a lot of Democrats who believe that the use of force could be justified in order to, you know, prevent this January 6th or in order to... Um, prevent what they perceive to be a threat to democracy. Um, I think I think the the uh, I will go back to the book behind me. Democracy amid crisis. I think we we need to understand that the the health of our uh, of our democracy depends on the uh, flow of reliable, trustworthy and trusted information. And, and where there is no trust and where there is a polluted information environment, uh, democracy is, is put at risk. Um, because if you have a large percent of Americans who believe that the integrity of the election had been lost, that, you know, uh, Hugo Chavez from the grave somehow changes votes uh, in the United States or, or that uh, uh, what did the, the, they argue that uh, ballots were thrown to the river in Philadelphia and all kind of arguments like that. People lose trust in the system. They lose trust in the, in the democracy itself. Um, and and these days, it's kind of easy to insulate yourself in an in information environment that keeps telling you that you're right, that, that the elections were stolen. And if it because, you know, there is a bunch of pedophiles who want to uh, take over the government, that could be a reason. Or maybe it's because, you know, uh, Jews are trying to take over the world. And maybe it's because... Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates are working together, you know, to install 5G chips in our brains so they can follow us. I don't know why they need it, by the way. They can follow us with our phones anyway, but fine. Um, all, all the way to the, you know, to people thinking that there is a bunch of lizard people running the government, uh, whatever. Yeah, whatever the reason that you believe in, um, if you believe that your vote doesn't count, if you believe that there is a scheme against you, um, if you believe that all your troubles are not the result of 
chance and bad luck or maybe your own decisions, but the, the result of an intentional attempt to, to defeat you, um, then you'll go long ways to protect yourself. Um, we've seen it before in America in, in, in extreme cases like, you know, the Waco um, standoff. We saw it in Ruby Ridge. We saw it in the Oklahoma uh, bombing, uh, Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, we saw it in the 21st century with the, um, with the Bundy Ranch and so on. When people begin to accept the narrative that there is a concerted effort to limit their freedoms, to limit their rights, um, they will go, you know, to, to long stretches to, to protect themselves. Uh, and and it's often going to include the use of violence. Um, information matters. Conspiracy theories matter. Uh, I, 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 it's kind of shocking to understand that, that it took us so long to realize it. You know, I studied, I began studying misinformation in 2012, including conspiracy theories. And, and back in 2012, people thought it was a, kind of weird topic to spend your time on. Uh, I had I had very smart people coming to me and say, are you sure you want to study misinformation? It's kind of, it's, it's a niche, you know? <laughs> so there is a bunch of crazy people who think that the world is flat. Who cares? Um, but you could see the beginning of something much darker, even back then. You could see that, that, that misinformation matters. You could see that mothers who believed that, that the vaccine companies are using, you know, uh, aluminum-based materials in, in vaccines uh, to turn them autistic, those mothers will not vaccinate their kids. If they don't vaccinate their kids, if enough people do that, you have a measles outbreak in California or in Minnesota, right? Um, we saw that when people believed that Iraq had uh, weapons of mass destruction, they were more likely to support a war that was based on, on lies and, 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 and deception. We saw that, that people who believed um, in all kinds of falsehoods were, were willing to vote for a presidential candidate who, you know, for most of us political scientists was unreasonable, you know, uh, winner in the 2016 elections. Not because political scientists disliked him, because based on everything we knew from, from the, 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 the history of the United States, this guy was not supposed to win. But later on, we, we learned that, that there were a lot of agents out there who worked diligently to lie and, and deceive and, and, uh, and push people's buttons in a way that influenced their voting. So I think these days, the good news, you know, we talk about a lot of grim things here, but the good news is that I think people begin to understand that the online world is not separated from the real world. That what happens on 4chan and 8chan, uh, those are kind of the, you know, the sewers of the internet where, where there is absolutely no content moderation and people say whatever they want. Those things have a way of spilling over into mainstream. Uh, we now understand that a mad conspiracy like QAnon can make its way to Capitol Hill. I mean, you have people like Mar uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene who brings those conspiracies to Congress. And you had a president, the man at the top of the pyramid of the, of the strongest country and maybe most important country in the world, spreading lies and conspiracies on, on a daily basis. What daily? I mean, I mean dozens a day. The Washington Post have tracked it. He, he lied dozens of times per day. And those things have 
and impact. Those things can push people to do to take the wrong decisions and to make the wrong choices. Not every person who's going to get exposed to a conspiracy theory will become a mass shooter. No, it's not doesn't work like that. But a person who's already susceptible, a person who's been going through some hardships, a person who uh, you know has some some uh, mental health challenges, a person who feels isolated from his friends and community and and, and family can find answers in those stories. He can find comfort in those stories. If I lost my job and I lost my friends and 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 my factory was moved to to you know uh, China or Bangladesh or whatever, um, it's much harder to understand the global complexity of the economy these days. It's much easier to just tell yourself that 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 there are like non-white people who want to kill me and remove me from from my job. Um, for some people, it will push the buttons, and for some people, with the right conditions, it will be enough to push them for to violence, and to put, you know, to to, to make things even worse. We have uh, something we didn't talk about yet today, but but we have uh, some some gun laws that that allows those people in this specific country. Um, to take the action that they want. There is misinformation everywhere. I mean, we're not alone. Germany is fighting misinformation. Thailand is, is fighting misinformation. I keep meeting people from around the world. I, I, I talked to a Pakistani uh, uh, a journalist and, and he told me, like, everything you say, we have it too. Brazil is going through this. But the United States is, is different. We have more mass shootings. We have more murders because... Our information system collides with our with our gun control policies um, to the place where even if a small percentage of people believe those things, and even if a tiny percentage of those who believe it will actually take a gun and shoot somebody, um, uh, in our environment, that could be enough to cost the lives of, of hundreds or thousands of people. And that's what we're seeing today, quite honestly. I, I think the number of mass shootings just this year yeah. is now approaching 200. And it's a, it's an American problem. I mean, I mean, we it have to American admit problem. it. People say it's video games. You know, I, I, in my in my in our jobs, people say, "Oh, it's the video games. They're violent." But people play video games in, in South Korea. People play video games in Canada. People play video games in Israel. We don't have those problems there. So we have to we have to face reality. I'm not I'm not pushing for a specific you know legislation here or or anything. And it's fine that different people have different opinions. I respect that. But we have to to face reality and, and understand that we, United States, we pay a different price for uh, misinformation and conspiracies than other countries because of our unique political, you know, social, legal uh, system. Yes, we do. My last question to you, and, I, and if you're just tuning in, I'm with Dr. Yotam Ophir. He's assistant professor, Department of Communication from the University at Buffalo. And as you can tell from this podcast, he's really well-versed in misinformation and disinformation. He's written a book, uh, early 2023, about the 2020 presidential election that came in light of COVID-19. It's called Democracy Amid Crises, Polarization, Pandemic, Protest, and Persuasion. And it was published by Oxford University Press. It's available on Amazon. Last question, Dr. Ophir. Uh, this podcast is called Grassroots Health for a Reason. Uh, it's because I believe that the most effective, most sustainable, 
initiatives come from the bottom up as people get uh, bring them to the surface. So what are some things that we can do at the grassroots level to counteract these negative effects? Right. So, um, um, team, your work, uh, you're a public health expert, and, and I've seen your work. And, and what, what fascinates me is that, that you can see in every uh, part of your research how you understand that different populations have different needs, different beliefs, different norms and values. I think um, hoping that somebody like me, a professor, you know, at the ivory tower, will will come forward and, and say something, and then everybody will believe him and change their opinions. That's not going to happen. Um, when we fight misinformation, community matters, and community matters because different people have different needs and different belief systems, and they come from different places. Um, we are beyond the point where we still think that the problem is that people don't have enough knowledge. One of the biggest theories over the years was the deficit model. It, it kind of implied that if only people knew that, that smoking is bad, they will stop smoking, right? If only people knew that, that, that they need to get vaccinated. That's not true. Take, take something like um, evolution. For religious people, Christians and specifically evangelicals, there is data. There are data showing that the more knowledge, the knowledgeable they are, the less likely they are to believe in evolution or climate change and things like that. It's not a problem of knowledge. It's a problem of values and and belief systems. We 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 must stop believing and hoping that there is a one solution that fits all, and we should work through our community leaders. And, and people from those susceptible subpopulations to talk to them in their language, to, to understand where they're coming from. I mean, I, I study a lot of weird stuff. I'm spending a lot of time on, on neo-Nazi forums and on 4chan and HN, and I see maddening things. But it's very tempting to just, you know, disregard those people as wackos and, and, and say, okay, my uncle is crazy. Nobody, you know, can talk to them. That's not true. People come from somewhere. They have some needs. There is a reason why they believed what they believed. Trying to respect them, I know it's hard every time students come to me and say, it's really hard for me to respect my, you know, uh, uh, my sister who, who, who doesn't, you know, get vaccinated. I, it's hard for me to respect her. It's really hard to respect my, my neighbor who believes that uh, Hillary Clinton is a pedophile who, who molests kids. I understand, but we need to respect those people. Uh, we need to understand where they're coming from. They need to understand that at the heart of it all, they do want to seek the truth. They do want to know what's right and what's wrong. We need to understand what values and beliefs they have, maybe religious beliefs, maybe political beliefs, maybe, you know, um, uh, beliefs related to their origins and heritage, and, and speak to each of them in their language. Um, condescending over people and believing that we are very smart and everybody else is is idiot doesn't work. It's not going to work. And for that, we need the community. We need the community. And that's some of the work we do here is to try and reach community leaders um, um, who are who are trusted by those populations and, and can I talk I agree to with them. you. Yeah, we so, can't be condescending. We have to be respectful, yeah. tolerant. Uh, we have to teach our students how to identify valid and reliable information. And let's keep doing what we're doing. 
And the, this podcast, by the way, is an effort to do that, to Absolutely. shed some light on some of the things. So you've been listening to Dr. Yotam Ofer. He's assistant professor at the Department of Communication at the University of Buffalo. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. We'll have you back if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have you back and talk some more because I know we barely scratched the surface yeah. on this. And uh, we'll see you in July. If you're listening to this, this is already June. In July, we'll see you the first Monday, I think is the third this, this year, July 3rd. We'll see you next time. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>